we're here to talk with you here at the tail end of Black History Month about a key group in Black history that you may or may not be familiar with. But why now? Like, why is this relevant for you to keep listening to? And it's relevant to our recent discussions about why we are all here as a nation in 2021. Things like why we can't unify, why we can't and won't accept responsibility for violence and hate, why people believe in conspiracy theories and the big lie, even though these things are demonstratively, oh my, how do we say this word? Demonstratively false, demonstrably. (laughs) I'm here with you folks. It all comes down to social safety nets, right? That is to say, when people's needs are being taken care of, they are not in survival mode anymore. They have food, education, healthcare, shelter. And when their individual needs are met, well, then we can focus on each other's well-being and really see the community, the we, past the I. So guess which group believed in that too and actually implemented many of the programs that are so crucial to those safety nets? Have you guessed by now? It's the Black Panther Party. So, Sarah, as you just mentioned, February is Black History Month, and we shouldn't have to tell you, but you know us, we're going to anyway, that Black history is American history, yet we often don't learn about it in school. In fact, according to Anti-Racism Daily and SocialStudies.org, in 2015, one to two lessons, or eight to nine percent of total class time, is devoted to Black history in U.S. history classrooms. If you're thinking that's a small amount, it is a small amount. Yes. So what you may know or what you may have learned in that tiny fraction of time in U.S. history about the Black Panther Party may be all wrong. It's like a pronunciation debacle in this episode. Roll with us, folks. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay, bear with us. Yep. As Time Magazine pointed out. For the past half century, depictions of the Black Panther Party in mainstream media have largely glossed over their ideas or their community activism. According to Shaka King, the director of the new Black Panther-focused film, Judas and the Black Messiah, which sounds like an amazing film, by the way, they've been reduced to leather peacoats and shotguns. They've been called terrorists, fringe separatists, wild beasts, and the civil rights movement's evil twin. I mean, if that's not a resounding, like, villain statement. I don't know what is. Right. Yeah. So while the words of other civil rights activists like Martin Luther King Jr., John Lewis, and Malcolm X are widely read and revered, those of Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, and Fred Hampton are taught and shared with far less frequency. And if you don't know those names now, you will. So keep listening on about this. And also, I totally have seen Judas and the Black Messiah's like advertisements pop up on Netflix whenever I turn something on. So that's on my list. I think it's going to be amazing. Yes. Yes. But as Time also notes, if you ask many current activists fighting anti-Black racism and inequity today, they'll tell you that the influence of the Black Panthers is actually immeasurable. According to Aislinn Pulley, a co-founder of Black Lives Matter Chicago and a co-executive director of the Chicago Torture Justice Center, the Black Panthers exist as a continual barometer to measure ourselves against, both in terms of lessons that have been garnered, as well as challenges in terms of where we can improve or deepen our analysis. So interesting. I mean, Misasha, you and I have talked about researching and doing this episode for almost a year. So today we're all going to school together and I'm really excited about what we're going to learn. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that, I mean, depending on if you like the tagline or not, let us know, helps white women use their privilege to dismantle systemic racism. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. So... Let's start at the very beginning of the Black Panther Party. The Black Panther Party founders, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, 
So remember those names. Those are the ones I mentioned earlier. Those are the ones Sarah called out. They met in 1961 while students at Merritt College in Oakland, California. And P.S. Does this narrative sound familiar? I love a good college walkout meet cute. I'm sorry. What is a meet cute? (laughs) Okay, so Sarah, this is so disappointing. I mean, how are we even friends? Okay, it's a rom-com term. Hello. And as the true crime aficionado of the two of us, I am shocked that I know this term as opposed to you. It's like when, you know, you have this random meeting that's super cute in the end. And I don't know if, you know, they would call this a cute meeting, but I thought it was very cute because it sounds very similar to other people met. Oh, that's like us. Yes. (laughs) In case you don't know, folks, we met walking out of a meeting of the Half Asian People's Association when we were both undergrads at Harvard. I think that's almost like 25 years ago now. Yep. Yeah. I've known you for a while, my friend. I love you. (laughs) (laughs) Love you, too. So anyway... Huey Newton and Bobby Seale met very similarly, not walking out of a half Asian People's Association meeting, obviously, but they were both protesting the college's Pioneer Day celebration, which honored the pioneers who came to California in the 1800s, but omitted, conveniently, the role of African-Americans in settling the American West. Seale and Newton went on to form the Negro History Fact Group, which called on the school to offer classes in Black history. And just to interrupt, 100%, like, have you ever heard of the role of African-Americans in settling the American West? No. I mean, you might have, but like, I definitely did not learn about it. Right. So I get that. Okay. Right. So from there, they founded the Black Panthers in the wake of the assassination of Black nationalist Malcolm X. And after police in San Francisco shot and killed an unarmed black teen named Matthew Johnson. So you've probably heard about Malcolm X, but we had never heard of Matthew Johnson. And according to history.com, he was one of three teenagers joyriding in a stolen 1958 Buick through Hunter's Point, which and so Hunter's Point is an area in San Francisco and that area in particular after white flight post World War II was basically all black and very poor. So they were joyriding in this car on a hot Tuesday afternoon on September 27th, 1966. The car unfortunately stalled right as a police cruiser approached. All three boys ran. And we say boys because Johnson was the oldest of the three at 16 years old. All three were black. Alvin Johnson, a white policeman with 23 years experience and no relation, by the way, to Matthew Johnson. Oh, does that remind you of Amy Cooper? And like, okay, (laughs) okay. I'm just saying, you know, there's so many parallels, so many. Okay, so Alvin Johnson chased them in his car and tried to cut off two of the boys, basically using his car. According to the official city report, he called out to Matthew Johnson, stop, hold it, or I'm going to shoot. Okay, another important point here, Matthew Johnson was unarmed. As he ran down a hill near the housing project, Alvin fired four shots, one of which hit Matthew in the heart. He died within minutes. I mean, I just think about anybody who says, well, he did something wrong. He was joyriding in a stolen car. And it really reminds me of the conversation we had with Marcus Bullock, who again, yes, people do make mistakes, right? He made a mistake and he lived and paid the price in the way of like prison time. Yeah. Eight years, right? Going in as a 15 year old. Right. So yes, people do. But at the same time, have you ever done anything wrong? Like, I mean, I think all of us have done something that probably is not right at some stage in our life. And do you think that you should have been killed for that mistake? 
right? It's not to say that people can do whatever they want. Yes, I do think, I mean, even like we said in that conversation with Marcus, he said, like, you should have consequences for decisions that you make. But side note, how's that consequence thing going for our former president right now? Yeah, I know. I keep digressing today. But again, how about stopping this whole idea that we can kill black bodies because they make a bad decision. I don't think that that is like, you can't justify killing somebody because they did something wrong, right. especially if they're not threatening you. It's not in self-defense. None of this is in self-defense. Right. So Sarah, you mentioned parallels earlier between the Amy Cooper, right. And Christian Cooper having the same name and very different situations But this whole killing of Matthew Johnson is very similar and how it was reacted to was very similar with the murder of George Floyd this past summer. So in the Matthew Johnson scenario, the news of this killing of an unarmed boy spread really rapidly and it resulted in the worst three day period of racial violence in San Francisco since the anti-Chinese riots, which happened 90 years prior. And so it was out of this killing that the Black Panther Party was born. And if this origin story sounds familiar for another reason, it should, because Black Lives Matter was also founded due to anger and frustration after George Zimmerman was acquitted for the murder of 17-year-old Trayvon Martin in 2013. So the Black Panther Party was originally, had originally even longer name. It was originally dubbed the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, and it was founded by both Newton and Seal on October 22nd, 1966, which was the next month after Matthew's murder and on Seal's 30th birthday. They believed that the fight for racial equality would not be won by a slow drip of nonviolent actions and protests, which probably sounds familiar because that was the message of Martin Luther King Jr. in a lot of ways, but that stronger actions were required to ensure the survival of Black people. Their, the Black Panthers' early activities primarily involved monitoring police activities in Black communities in Oakland and in other cities. They used the advantage of the Second Amendment, and we'll come back to constitutional stuff in a second, and the open carry law in California at the time to patrol the police, watching from a safe distance while carrying rifles to intimidate officers into following the law. Now, just hold on a second here, because I hear you, and I just want everyone to envision this scenario. Just be aware of what you're picturing and the feelings you have when you imagine this idea of a group of Black people holding guns and patrolling the police. Just, I'm not judging. Just be aware of what lens you're bringing into this. Right. And in fact, a large part of the group's campaign against racial injustice at the start relied on gun ownership and training. Newton and Steele began collecting a variety of guns during the early years of the Black Panthers, including machine guns, rifles, and handguns. And remember, California at the time was an open carry state. New recruits were required to learn how to wield, clean, and shoot guns, in addition to understanding their right to carry firearms and how to communicate that to police in California. So Newton was also a former law student, and he put his own knowledge of the law to the test after he and Seal were stopped by Oakland police officers in early 1967 in a vehicle filled with weapons. When questioned about the guns, Newton simply replied that the only thing he was obliged to do was give his identification, name, and address, which he was correct on. At the request of the officer, Newton stepped out of the car, rifle still in tow, and refused to explain why he and the other Black Panthers were carrying their weapons, also within his rights. As onlookers gathered, the police tried to disperse the crowd, while Newton welcomed them. 
He knew that under California law, bystanders could legally view an arrest as long as they didn't intrude. Since there were no violations for the police to charge the Black Panther members with, as well as a growing pack of witnesses, they were able to leave the scene without any trouble from law enforcement. And just think about, you know, that was 1967. Just think about how that situation, how you may have seen that situation played out in so many different ways with many fewer witnesses since that point. Oh, just a whole conversation about it just makes me like have a knot in my stomach because I feel like things have changed so much since then. Mm -hmm. So emboldened by their calm exchange with the police, members of the group began to follow police cars and dispense legal advice to African-Americans who were stopped by the police while legally carrying their weapons. The group referred to these activities as police patrols. Bobby Seale and Huey Newton basically used the Second Amendment to justify carrying guns in public to police the police. And I think this is a really important point, right? The Panthers, according to various Panther, Black Panther historians, the Panthers would stand to the sidelines with their guns, shouting out directions to the person who was basically the person interacting with the police officer, that they had the right to remain silent, that they were watching, and that if anything bad happened, that the Black Panthers would be there to protect them. I mean, can you see this happening today? I just watched American Skin, and I... Like in that film, the cop even like kills a kid because he won't put down his phone from filming. Right. And meanwhile, you in this situation and time, you have people with guns shouting out what is legal and what's not. I can't see that happening today because I feel like the instant reaction that people have now is that, well, black people with guns must have them illegally without a license. And so or they're up to no good. And I think you'd be shot and killed on sight. Like people are being shot and killed for so much less. And I would imagine even if white people with guns were to be doing this, similarly, not okay. Like the police, I just can't see the police being okay with being patrolled. And I'm not saying anything negative about the police, but the psyche of this country has gotten to this fever pitch of fear around being killed or kill or be killed and guns and everybody has them and there's no respect around them. I mean, am I wrong on this? Like, I just wonder how it has all shifted. And I'm sure we'll learn as we keep talking about it, but it feels like an alternate universe that this happened in. Well, I think as I'm going to talk about the next part, I want you to think about what we saw from law enforcement during the Black Lives Matter peaceful protests over the summer and what we saw at the Capitol on January 6th. I think those images are really important to think about and keep in your head for this next part. So the Black Panthers also organized a march to the Capitol, the California State Capitol, to draw attention to their cause of fighting against a government that sought to infringe on their right to bear arms. On May 2nd, 1967, 30 fully armed Black Panthers occupied the state, California State Capitol. The demonstration was motivated by Republican Assemblyman Don Mulford's bill to repeal the law, allowing Californians to openly carry weapons, which was a direct response to the Black Panthers police patrols. Before entering the building, Bobby Seale read a written statement on the Capitol steps in front of Governor Ronald Reagan. The American people in general and the Black people in particular, Seale declared, must take careful note of the racist California legislature aimed at keeping the Black people disarmed and powerless. So the group of activists occupying the Capitol with fully loaded weapons on full display was an unforgettable sight. But as you can imagine... A group of Black individuals lawfully carrying weapons did not sit well with a whole bunch of white people. And notably, even though they were carrying weapons, this was a peaceful demonstration. Their demonstration backfired, and the bill passed both the State Assembly and the Senate with the full support of the NRA. <laughs> what? 
<laughs> I knew you'd love that part. With the full support of the NRA, the organization that couldn't get out of the way when it came to putting reasonable safeguards on firearm access after white kids were killed in elementary school, that NRA? Same NRA. Yeah. The same organization, by the way, that just filed for bankruptcy, even though they also say they're on solid financial footing. So something is clearly dodgy there already. I mean, because this is actually, it's so foreign, I think, to how we understand the NRA to be today, right? That the NRA would back a law that removes the right to open carry in any state, right? And would pass, would act for stricter gun control laws. So in addition to repealing open carry gun laws in California, Mulford made it illegal to take firearms into the Capitol. And this law was signed by Governor Ronald Reagan. So he was the governor of California before he became president, who later commented that he saw, quote, no reason why on the street today a citizen should be carrying loaded weapons. I wonder if that citizen was a different color, how that would have, you know, made a difference. According to Adam Winkler, author of Gunfight, The Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms, This law was part of a wave of laws that were passed in the late 1960s regulating guns, especially to target African-Americans, including the Gun Control Act of 1968, which adopted new laws prohibiting certain people from owning guns, providing for beefed up licensing and inspections of gun dealers, and restricting the importation of cheap Saturday night specials, which was the nickname for pocket pistols that were popular in some urban communities. In contrast to the NRA's rigid opposition to gun control in today's America, and going right back to the NRA, the organization fought alongside the government for stricter gun regulations in the 1960s. As you might suspect, this was part of an effort to keep guns out of the hands of African Americans as racial tensions in the nation grew. The NRA felt especially threatened, no shocker here, by the Black Panthers, whose well-photographed carrying of weapons in public spaces was entirely legal in the state of California, where they were based until this law came to pass. So just to recap, the NRA was totally for gun control when it was about guns in Black hands. And they felt somewhat differently about the Second Amendment and its rights then than when it's about an all-white militia at the Capitol or, you know, a whole group of white supremacists in Charlottesville, or you get the picture. And side note, this is why I really hate the constitutional arguments, because everyone wants to read the Constitution and interpret it how they believe it should be read, and generally to favor the group that they're with. You know, I'm shaking my head, right? Like, I have so many thoughts on this. All right. Talk to me about gun control laws. So, and as a side note, ironically, it was the gun control laws that were put into effect against African-Americans and the Black Panthers in particular that led, quote, rural white conservatives across the country to fear any restriction of their own guns. And that's according to that author who wrote that great book about gun control. In less than a decade, the NRA would go from backing gun control regulations to inhibit groups they felt threatened by to refusing to support any gun control legislation at all right? Which seems to make no sense, but that's probably another separate podcast entirely. Honestly, it really would be, but like, I get it. That's a cycle, right? Oh, let's sell more guns. Let's just have all the people fight against each other versus restricting them and money and all of these things. Yes. That is a separate podcast episode. Maybe we need to do that sometime. (laughs) Yes. We could definitely talk about that for hours, clearly. But what's also really important is the Black Panther's emphasis on policing and looking at the role of the police extended to looking at our prison system and the disproportionate jailing of Black men. 
according to, you know, the Black Panther had put out a party platform known as the 10 point program. And one of the bullet points read, we want freedom for all black men held in federal, state, county and city prisons and jails. And we'll talk more about the 10 point program in a little bit. But this was crucial to the Black Panther's mission. In 1970, they proposed reorganizing the police toward a communal volunteer system. Angela Davis, who was affiliated with the Panthers Los Angeles chapter, stumped for prison reform and a reimagining of what the actual prison system could look like. I mean, the 1970s, folks, these conversations about reforming and reorganizing the police and the systems of mass incarceration are not new. They've been around for over 50 years. Yes. I think that's super important that this isn't, you know, a rise in 2020 of something that, you know, we've never discussed before. This has been discussed and discussed and discussed because of the disproportionate impact it has on the Black community in particular, but people of color more generally. We need to do something about it. Enough is enough. When are the people who are not totally vested in the system themselves, i.e. not Black, when are the white people and all the other people, when are we all going to do something about this and really force change? Because, I mean, I can go into, again, how mass incarceration doesn't work to get what we want. It's not creating a safer society. Yet again, another episode, but okay. Yes, clearly we could do a whole Black Panther spinoff episode of all the issues that were raised. But so, you know, over the past several decades, Fred Hampton's son, Fred Hampton Jr., has taken up his father's mantle of activism in his leadership of the Black Panther Party Cubs. Okay, so I'm interrupting because when you said Fred Hampton, I was like, wait, who's Fred Hampton again? And because I'd heard his name, but forgotten his story, I looked him up. You know, you had mentioned him at the beginning too. And I just want to make sure everyone knows Fred Hampton was prominent in Chicago. He headed up the Illinois chapter of the Black Panthers, was really, really good at what he did. And therefore was named a radical threat by the FBI. And he was assassinated in bed by the police and the FBI in a raid while he slept next to his very, very pregnant wife. And meanwhile, the police called it a shootout, even though the only shot fired by a Black Panther was the guy who was sitting guard. And like the shot happened after he was shot dead in the chest and was falling over. Mm -hmm. So suspect. And also, is it parallel to others who were deemed a threat and shot in their beds? Anybody recently? Brianna Taylor, anybody? Yeah, sounds familiar. So again, these are not new things that are happening. You know, if we ever hear us talking about like how Black people have been involved in these conversations their entire lives, these things have happened throughout history. And if you're listening and this is new to you, we're so glad you're here because it's about time that we all get involved in this conversation. And also, because it's been happening for so long, it's going to take a long time to unwind it. And we need more and more and more and more voices involved in clamoring for change because it hasn't happened so far, but it needs to. So going back to Fred Hampton, we'll talk more about him in next week's episode, part two, about the community work that the Black Panthers did. But I just wanted to interject with that little bit of information because I didn't remember who he was. Yeah, that's really important. And then when you go back to Fred Hampton's son as carrying on this legacy that was started by his father this summer, as in 2020, the group Black Panther, now the sort of the newer Black Panther Party, was particularly active in calling attention to the ways in which they felt the coronavirus outbreak in Chicago's Cook County Jail, which incidentally was the nation's largest COVID-19 hotspot in April of 2020, was basically an extension of the jail's long history of oppression and violence. According to Fred Hampton Jr., we see prison as a microcosm of our community. Chairman Fred, and he was referring to his father, himself was held there. Last summer, the state was literally turning Cook County into an open casket. 
As coronavirus outbreaks raged in prisons across the country, protesters took to the street demanding the end of police brutality to the defunding of police or outright abolition. While the idea of abolition has proved very controversial politically, which I think is a huge understatement, but true, an ABC Ipsos poll taken last June showed a majority of Americans supported the redirection of funds from police to other services. According to Aislinn Pulley, who we had quoted earlier, the fight back against police repression that the Panthers engaged in hugely has underpinnings of abolition. Again, change takes such a long time. And this is nothing new to many people who've been aware and involved and affected by what's happening in America. And I'm, aren't you so glad you're in the zone now, too? Because we are. I mean, for me, being involved in these conversations continues to make me feel more grounded to reality, not just this false reality about what's in my bubble, but the greater reality of what's happening. It connects me to purpose, to humanity, to understand not just the history, but the psychology of all these things and how they come together. And so I'm excited to learn more about the nonviolent side of what the Black Panthers did to contribute hugely to the support systems that actually we are in really, really short supply of in America, both then and now. If you love what you're hearing, subscribe to the Dear White Women podcast so you don't miss any of our anti-racist, identity-affirming episodes released every Wednesday. Shows that seek to show that we as humans rise by lifting others. Support our Patreon, which allows us to keep making work that highlights different narratives that help us broaden our horizons, including a new monthly virtual community centered around book studies. Want to follow us on social media? We're at Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women Podcast. And we're on Twitter at DWW Podcast. And of course, we'll be sending out vital info and opinions via email, which you can sign up for on our website, www.dearwhitewomen.com. Thanks for being part of the conversation. 